You're listening to the Smart Arts Podcast, presented by Richard Watts. You can listen to Smart Arts every Thursday morning from 9am to 12pm here on Triple R. It's going to be a busy morning on Smart Arts today. We've got everything from the French Film Festival to comedian Felicity Ward. Uh, Also, regular segments Art Attack and Fistful of Celluloid. Plus, uh, Anouk van Dyck from Chunky Move will be joining us to talk about Depth of Field, the latest Chunky Move production uh, on as part of Dance Massive. On the visual art front, uh, as well as Art Attack, we're going to find out about the exhibition Albert Tucker, The Truth in Masquerade, uh, plus an exhibition called Street Life, which is a, a collaboration between artists from Indonesia and Australia. Uh, also on the performance front, The Vagina Monologues, a fundraising performance slash reading on at Abbotsford Convent, and also another Dance Massive production, Long Grass. We're going to be speaking with choreographer Vicky Van Hoot about that production a little bit later on as well. Hope you can stick around. We've got visual art, we've got film, we've got dance, we've got play readings, all that and more. It's going to be fun. Richard Watts with you here on Smart Arts, taking you through till midday today here on Triple R. And my first guest for the morning joins me in the studio now from the Alliance Francaise French Film Festival. We're joined by the festival's director, uh, Emmanuel uh, Denevi-Feller. Welcome. Bonjour, Richard. Good morning. So uh, this is uh, a bit of a landmark year for the festival. It's in its 26th year, which is a, a significant achievement for any festival. It is. 26 years is a uh, big, not uh, old, but uh, already mature, I'd say. So it's very exciting to see that the festival is still uh, growing. In uh, Melbourne, it uh, opened yesterday night, so you can see on my face that I still have a <laughs> <laughs> last time uh, <laughs> you're, you're looking party. Rem- you're looking remarkably uh, fresh and <laughs> not hungover, uh, which I would be were I in your state, given that you did have the opening night last night. Now, the festival is running through until the 22nd of March. Uh, and as you say, it continues to grow. Why do you think that is? What's the popularity of French cinema in particular? Why does it have such a, a core and loyal audience, but also a growing audience? France produces more more than 250 films per year, so the industry itself is uh, flourishing in France, and it's a very strong industry. I also think that there is a strong love story between uh, France and Australia. We have very deep links that link our two countries, and I think that you can feel that also in the cinema, because French cinema is popular not only during the festival, which is the highlight of the year, but also all over the year. So I think it's also very important to to, to say that, yeah, there is this, uh, this really uh, uh, Australian duel of friends. They go there very regularly, so they, they, know, they know friends and they, they are very keen about French cinema. And I also say that French cinema is uh, particularly maybe unique because even though it's a very different culture and uh, even though it's very far away, it uh, resonates with your own life 
if you are Australian or and I think this is quite unique so that's maybe what explained the success of, of the French cinema here what explained the success of the festival also because we have been uh, involving uh, many uh, more the audience we try really to, uh, to get the audience engaged the festival is not only go to a black uh, room and see a, a film in a big screen which is a, a great experience it's also events special events Q&A's and uh, this year we Obart will also join the, the city so, so that's great to see that the festival is expanding Now, that notion of providing uh, guests to the festival with events other than just the film screenings itself seems to be coming... more and more important for film festivals. Talking to Lisa Daniel, the director of the Melbourne Queer Film Festival recently, she spoke about the fact that because we now live in an age of download culture where people can, as soon as they hear about a film overseas, they can jump online and try and uh, find a, a copy of it to download. To counteract that, it requires that festivals program more panels, more special events, more Q&As, so that there is a culture beyond just the films themselves. How important are those additional extras, the guests, the Q&As and so forth, for you in terms of attracting an audience? It is very important. First of all, is the experience you are having in the cinemas, and we are keen to have the experience very strong within the cinemas, and the palace cinemas are very keen also to, uh, to do that for, uh, for their patrons. Uh, of course, you can download films, and I think that downloading maybe doesn't prevent you from going to the big screen. Maybe it helps you to go to the big screens. And um, as you said, it's also important that we can draw and uh, do a program in conjunction with the film. For instance, in Melbourne, we do Q&A to go beyond the film to work about uh, certain films, about certain subjects. Some of the films are adaptation from books, so we do it in, uh, in partnership with the, the University of Melbourne. And yes, it's very important. Also important is to bring the kids in the cinemas, because I think that uh, when you start young, you, uh, you, you keep going to the cinemas. It's important to involve them. And we have been working closely with the school and with uh, making pedagogical kits because the festival is also uh, all about language and uh, it's done by the Alliance Française. The Alliance Française has two roles, is to uh, teach French and promote French culture and I'm very impressed because a lot of people uh, tell me that they go to the cinema to see the French movies also because they can hear the French language and we are lucky enough that the films are not dubbed but subtitled in English. I'm, which I'm very glad to know about. I always think dubbing films is rather barbaric. It's, I want to hear the actors speaking. I want to hear the, <laughs> the language that the, that the film has been made in. Yeah, it's really to plunge into a, into a culture, I think. And, uh, it's, uh, yeah, but it's, it's lucky. Yeah. If we're talking about uh, bringing children in early, teaching them French language, exposing them to French culture and to film culture, let's talk about some of the the, uh, the children's films that are screening in the festival this year. Yeah, so we have three films speci- specially dedicated for them, but more than that can, of course, be seen by children. Um, of course, we have Asterix, uh, which is a very famous uh, uh, animated animation, comics, and uh, also, Little Nicolas, which is a very famous book in France, and uh, it's been very successful, successful here also. It's a naughty boy, but also, very no, also a very funny boy. And the last one will be The Moomins, which is based on a comic uh, uh, from Finland. Which I, I, I love the idea of a French film about some, something that is so quintessentially Finnish, the, the Moomin troll family. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> are, are Finnish icons, and yet here we have a, a French-Finnish co-production, uh, an animated film about the Moomins. So. Yeah, and I think cinema is more, of course, about encounters and co-productions are really uh, embodies these encounters. And here it's uh, they're on the French Riviera, so it's... Uh, <laughs> 
Now, um, as well as children's film, obviously there's a, a broad range of different programming streams within the festival. So there are documentary films, there are comedies, there are um, romances. There's, I think for a lot of people they might associate French cinema perhaps the most with romance and drama, kind of uh, emotionally intense films. But you've also got a, uh, a selection of films linked um, uh, through their association with David, David Stratton and Margaret Pomerantz, who are the festival's patrons this year. Yes, we were very keen to, uh, to, as I said, to engage the audience and also to show that this festival is, uh, is made uh, for the uh, Australian and we are also keen to show that uh, there is this strong links between, uh, as I said, France and Australia. So last year, Julia Zemiro was uh, our patron and this year we asked David and Margaret to, uh, to be our patrons and to pick some uh, films from the selection to recommend some of them and there are they are highly regarded in Australia, so it's, uh, they have been fantastic with us, and uh, it's great to have them uh, with us. So, as you said, the, the festival is um, the idea is to show the diversity of a, of a French creation. So it's 49 movies, 49. Um, it's a focus on recent films. So some of the films have been released in France some of uh, yesterday. For instance, The Easy Way Out was uh, released yesterday, and, uh, and yes, it's uh, it's very diversity. So uh, of those 39 features that are in the festival, uh, as we said, with documentaries, children's films, dramas, comedies, uh, and the fa- as you say, the fact that um, some of these films are, have only literally yesterday only just been released in France means that it's an opportunity not only for Francophiles living in Australia, but film buffs, uh, regardless of, uh, of any particular country they identify with, having the chance to see very new, very recent top quality French cinema. Very good, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's. I, I always hesitate about asking this question because I know that festival directors aren't supposed to play favourites, but mm. nonetheless, often there may be one or two films in the program that you are particularly proud of. Are there any such examples of, of, of films within the programming stream that have resonated with you the most or that you are proudest to, to be championing within this festival program? Yes, as you said, very personal because uh, I think that you choose your a film from uh, what you are and with your background. But yes, I do have uh, my own picks. Uh, I was very uh, happy with the opening night movie, Gemma Bovary, because it's, uh, it's an adaptation from a, from a comic, from Posey Simon, and it's also a reference to Madame Bovary, which is uh, one of the most uh, famous French novels by Gustave Flaubert. And it's a very nice and smart movie. I'll also have to, um, maybe my other pick would be Saint Laurent by Bertrand Bonello. It's a story, but non-official story of Yves Saint Laurent, the great designer. It's a fantastic movie, but also uh, the production of it with the soundtrack and all the atmosphere of it is uh, absolutely uh, fantastic with a great cast. The New Girlfriend by, by François Ozon. I know that François Ozon has many fans in Australia. And this one is a very unusual one with an unusual story. So it's, uh, unusual in what sense? Unusual because Romain Duris is uh, transforming himself, himself into a, a woman. The story of a man with, uh, who loses a wife who dies at the beginning of a the film. They have a children. And uh, actually he wants to be a woman. So he will be uh, transforming it himself. And it's, uh, yeah, it's very um, unusual movie. 
El Lador by January. It's a first feature film. It's a very funny film and also unusual. It's a kind of thriller, but um, it's a um, it's a comedy thriller with uh, Sandrine Kimberlin, who is playing a mythomaniac, and she'll be saved by a mythomani. So it's, it's, she's absolutely fantastic. And I'm, um, I'm, I really like the section coming of age. It's about next generation, of course, and it's a, it's a very um, tender movie, for instance, uh, and strong movies. Love at First Sight was uh, award-winning at the César Ceremony in France. It's a very good movie with Adèle Haenel, one of her great uh, French actresses. Girlhood is a challenging film about uh, uh, teenagers in the suburbs of Paris. They are black, they are facing uh, many challenges and many issues. And it's a very strong film by uh, Céline Schiama. I really like this one. Breeze also. And if you love music, go and see Eden by Mia Hansen Love. It's uh, about the French touch and the electronic music in the 90s. It's a semi autobiographical movie because it talks about her brother and she's so she's very smart and uh, her directing is very uh, kind and uh, intelligent I said Emmanuel many thanks for joining us here at Triple R thank you very much and enjoy the festival time for us to collectively have an art attack. Art attack, 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 attack. Art attack is our fortnightly visual arts review segment and uh, joined in the studio by Ace Wagstaff, who is flying solo today. Mm. No, t- no tie snake this morning. No tie. Oh. oh well. Hi Ty. Wherever <laughs> you are, whatever you're doing, hello. <laughs> yes. Um yeah, I, I was just saying to you off air, it's uh, it's very clear that the year has has well and truly begun. Everything's in full swing. C three had an opening last night, T C B had an opening last night, uh Fort Delta opens tonight. And um, and Town Hall Gallery had a ripper of a show, Data Flow, open on Tuesday night, um, which I highly recommend you all get down and see the, the Hawthorne Town Hall Gallery, um, curated by Kent Wilson, and all about how technology and the internet, social media platforms, this kind of digital simulacrum is uh, both affecting and, and refeeding the IRL world. Um, but for last night, went down and saw C3 Contemporary Art Space at Abbotsford Convent. Um, great suite of shows through there, curated by the director, sorry, not curator, organized by the director, John Bott. Um, but the, the show that really got me, or I guess stood out, was in the project space, a little exhibition, Horse Paintings 2, by Rachel Hooper. And at first, it was, um, you know, these paintings you could easily walk by them no offense to rachel hooper but you know beautifully colored pastel paintings and uh quite relatable in size smallish a3 non-intimidating but then as soon as you kind of start engaging with the works you realize just how complex they are in that 
these subtle pinks and purples and lilacs and creams aren't just these these uh, decorative color palettes but these kind of complex abstract works with slight figurative elements in them as well and that area in between the abstraction and the figurative really becomes quite blurred as the brush strokes that make up figures make up the background as well so there's this constant shifting of grounds between um, the the foreplane and uh, the background within the works um, and people want to see an example of uh, Rachel Hooper's work, uh, you can go to c3artspace.com.au. That's the the letter C, the number 3, c3artspace.com.au. Mm, and I had a look at the images online once I got home just to solidify some thoughts. Um, but, yeah, the, the online images don't do it any justice. You really do have to see them in the flesh to see those layers of really thin oil paint um, in which, as I said, they kind of blend the pictorial and the abstract with these dashes or fields of colours. So you you have these images of horses uh, sprinting across a mostly flat field of this highly irradiated pink, and their legs, ignoring any detail, kind of descend, descend into these uh, squarish, long, elongated rectangular forms as well. Um, or another work, a vase of flowers kind of hovers in these white billowing cloud-like forms, but there's references and little little pieces of information just beneath the surface that are, that are hidden from the viewer um, and fall fall away from recognition. They're, the works are a little bit unsettling, but only in the sense that it's very difficult to find what you're being unsettled by. It's it's that dreamlike state where you know that something's wrong, but you're not sure what. And I think that's where the works really work quite well, is the subject matter and the colouring really sucks you in, but then you're engaging with something quite complex happening just beneath the surface of the work. Sounds great. Yeah, another show on Justin Gallery 2... Um, is The Restless Now by Paul Philipson, Melanie Upton, and John Butt. So they've all contributed works into the space um, to have in dialogue with each other. And it was actually this show that I realised that the, the, the suite of exhibitions on at the moment all kind of speak of this language of translation and collaboration or um, re-representation. Um, as you can see, kind of Philip... Sorry, Philipson. Philip Philipson, Paul Philipson's works, um, echoing and mirroring the colour schemes and kind of shapes and forms in Melanie Upton's floor sculptures and um, uh, mound works, but also John Butt's images, the surfaces and textures that, that are present, uh, again, feedback into Melanie Upton's concrete and, and stone sculptures. So there's this real... Um, that's what I'm looking for. This real solid link in between the works, despite them being in these different mediums and formats. Hmm. So this is also on at C3. Yep. The Restless Now in Gallery 2. Paul Philipson, Melanie Upton and John Butt. And if you've not been down to C3 Art Space before, well, what are you waiting for? Uh, exhibition uh, on now until the 29th of mm. March in the various spaces at C3, uh, which is at Abbotsford Convent, 1 St Hillier Street, Abbotsford, and more info at c3artspace.com.au. And in the foyer space, there's a fantastic... Uh, work really kind of um, grabbing to anybody that might be passing by by Ara Delation and Michelle Donegan um, and they're a collaborative couple known as Nomad in which they install these 
big kind of um, installations that you're able to get inside and move around of string, uh, these network strings that kind of fall overhead, not quite like spider webs, but more like uh, visualizing data streams or Wi-Fi networks or yeah, kind of an internet map. Um, but it was really interesting in the sense that, again, like uh, The Restless Now and um, and Horse Paintings by Rachel Hooper, is that there's this sense that there's, there's, no, there's nothing fixed in that space. These sculptural objects kind of span from the ceiling to the floor and, and all around you. Uh, the string is stretched upward from bricks, um, so they all have these anchoring points. But the materials are really exposed and present. There's, there's no illusion. There's no trick. The materials are what they are. The process is quite visible. And um, and their occupation of the space is very quite present, so it's it's a very honest work in a lot of ways as well. Um, and it was nice to see our Adelation's new work because we actually reviewed him years ago. His name kind of poked in my head, and I remembered that Ty and I spoke about his work back in 2011 um, when he had a show on at First Sight Gallery at RMIT, and. Um, and I had to look that up again just to see the images to remind myself of what he had shown there. And this is definitely a, an evolution of his prior work in which, in 2011, he had coloured liquids in these uh, hand-cast slip vessels. And ebbing out of them, the liquid kind of followed these networks of strings again uh, onto these tripods, these hand-carved wooden tripods throughout the gallery space, so you were able to walk around and through them in the same way that you can his work and Michelle Donegan's work at, um, at the C3 foyer. Fantastic. Now, also at C3, there's a, a little show in St. Hillier's Gallery, uh, which is just around the corner, um, near the cafe there and it's called Par by Louise Blyton and Ian Wells um, and these are really reductive abstract works nice big colour field works that you can get lost in um, really seductive with raw linen backgrounds and dry pigments straight on the canvas um, what's interesting though is that despite these works being quite mechanical in nature really straightforward big bold shapes is that they're really quite romantic as well and when you hear Louise talk about her work or read about it she's always talking about you know it, it being fragile and beautiful and there being subtle shifts in color and this is quite evident but it's not normally language that we associate with this kind of work so it's definitely a bit of a treat uh, as said, TCB opened last night, one of 12 Waratah Place, and um, Waratah Place just comes off Little Burke, and um, upstairs is Soil Slag by Isadora Vaughan, and Princess by Sleeping Muse by Ella and Dawn, and tonight Yvette Coppersmith opens again, Abstract Works, Melbourne Abstraction, at uh, Fort Delta down in the Capitol Arcade. It really is, as you say, the year really has <laughs> got underway. Um, yeah, it's now in March. We've had January to oh, pause, really. February to kind of get into gear. Jive and, a little bit, yeah. And now it's just flat out crazy. Till, I think once till, White Night happens, that's it. You know it's, it's, it's well underway. 
Yeah. So uh, just to reiterate, the, the works you were talking about were at C3 Contemporary Art Space, located down at the Abbotsford Convent yep. in St. Helier's Street, Abbotsford. Yeah, Rachel Hooper in the project space with horse paintings, uh, Ara Delation and Michelle Donegan as Nomad in the foyer, and The Restless Now in Gallery 2 with Paul Phillips and Melanie Upton and John Butt. And if I had more time, I really would talk about the amazing um, kind of dialogue that happens with between Matt Detmer and Olive O'Donnell with their exhibition Verbal Bliss, and it's about these beautiful kind of occupation of space with signifiers, and mm, I'm getting... Sorry. <laughs> there is so much. There is always so much visual art to talk about in Melbourne. But uh, we will continue that conversation in a fortnight's time. Yeah, we'll do. Cheers, man. See ya. My next guest has joined me in the studio. Comedian Felicity Ward is not doing the Melbourne International Comedy Festival this year. Dun, dun, dun. Um, instead, she's remounting her show, The Iceberg, for one night only here in Melbourne. Yep. How's it going, Flick? Oh, I'm really well. How are you, Rich? I'm good. I'm good, yeah. Now, you've been uh, spending a lot of time overseas. I've been living there. I've been living in London. That's pretty hardcore. Yeah, it is. Uh, do you know what? I isn't, did... it, isn't it the kind of thing you're supposed to do when you're about 19 or 20? All right. I could still be 19 or 20. <laughs> I'm not. I'm dying. But uh, it kind of is. And then uh, I actually went there when I was 19, and I didn't like it. I didn't like London at all. I thought it was hard and mean and cold, and I thought people were very judgy. But I wanted to go to Glastonbury because I was very much into music when I was 19. So I went over there. And then um, I kept going back, and I kept hating it less that's sort of my relationship. And then um, when I started doing Edinburgh, every time I went over there, my time would just get a bit longer and a bit longer. And then I just wanted to get better. So I thought I, can, I want to do more gigs and the only way I can do more gigs is if I move to London. That absolutely makes sense. I mean, the Australian comedy circuit is relatively restricted. Yes, you've got some major festivals. You've got, mm-hmm. you can now do uh, Fringe World in Perth, segue straight into Adelaide, Fringe. Brisbane. Brisbane, Melbourne, Sydney, Perth, New Zealand. And you can do it, that's, you know, five months or something. Yeah, but then the rest of the year you're looking at, what, one gig a month at a comedy room somewhere around town. Yeah, or you go and, uh, you know, you can. I think you can do most of the gigs in Melbourne in about two weeks, I think. And um, if you've got this, this is the great thing about London. And I don't want to, you know, I'm not one of those people that have moved away. I'm like, oh, I don't even think about Australia anymore. I've come back and I miss it so much. I miss this country so much. You are so warm and happy and friendly and vitamin D, and I appreciate that. But in like in London, if I write new material, I can do it at four new material nights in a row. Just. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and then by Thursday I'll know whether it's worth fleshing out or not. Whereas here, if I do it, if I've got three gigs a week, I can't do new material at all of those gigs, and so it takes weeks and weeks to figure out whether an idea is worth following up or not. Okay. So The Iceberg is the show that you did in the Comedy Festival last year. You did it, yes. performed it at Acme, yes. all places, yeah. the Australian Centre for the Moving Image. Um, and one of the things that struck me about that show was the fact that even then, living over, spending more time in the US and the UK had given you a, a different perspective, a sharper perspective perhaps on Australia, our obsession with cricket, our lack of good sporting songs. And as I recall, something about fruit and hats. Yeah, there was a big thing about watermelon hats. It's Yeah, it's strange. It's my most Australian-centric show, and yet I wrote it while I was overseas. So I, I don't know. Maybe it was, um, maybe it was my little. Uh, well, it's not really a love love note. Um, 
uh, yeah, it's, it, it's, I, I think that I just became aware of how we're perceived while I was over there. And which is, when I did the show in Edinburgh, I did a, an interview, a radio interview, and it was in front of a live audience. And my friend was talking about Australia, who she's the host. And she said, um, you know, oh, I'd love to come to Australia, but I can't get on planes. And I just forgot where I was. And I said, well, don't come there by boat. And thinking that no one would get that, the whole audience got that. And the whole audience laughed. So that's an indication of how, how news is travelling. And how we're viewed overseas. Mm. Thank you, various excessive xenophobic governments. Yeah. yeah. So that was that was a really interesting um, moment. And I'd been doing the show for two weeks by then, so I knew that it would play over there. But I just had to change a few little things, um, which ended up being better for the show, which is so frustrating. It's like, I'm so, like I did this show in Australia maybe 40 times or something, and then I get to the UK, and my first preview in London... I had to do it in South London, and I live in North London, and there's a keyboard in the show, and I thought, you know what, I'll just do it without the keyboard just for the preview and just explain it in between because it was a cheap preview. And the show just works heaps better without the keyboard. I'm like, why am I finding this out now? It must be so weird being a... I mean, the the, the adjective kill your darlings is constantly used mm. for writing of any kind, being a writing of scripts, writing of short stories, uh, in my case, journalism. Um, there's that love phrase or, 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 or paragraph that you just love, but sometimes, as you've just said... It's got to go. It's got to go. Um, and for you, is it? I'm guessing that so often you don't necessarily know when it has to go or when it can stay. <laughs> when it is a darling. And, and Until it's in front of a live audience as well. And, yeah. Or a different audience. Because on, on page you may be going, that's a great joke. Oh, yeah. And there's, you know, there's you learn things over years, like if something's fun for me to do on stage, then it's probably the audience are going to enjoy it. If it's So there's this bit that I've written that I think is really funny and I love doing it, and it's just a little tangent within another bit, but it gets absolutely nothing from the audience. I've been doing it for a couple of weeks now. I'm like, I do not want to drop this. I'm not dropping it. It's funny. I know that it's funny. Uh, but will you, but but does it happen? How how tough is it to to actually bring out the the mental scissors and, and delete a routine from your memory and and from the script for a show? Well, it's easily it's easy to delete a routine from your memory. Sometimes you don't even remember them. Um, and that's actually usually when I've got a new show. That's how I know if something is not as strong as I thought it was because I'll forget to do it a couple of nights in a row. And I go, okay, well if I've forgotten to do it and it flows better without it, then it's no problem at all. It's actually just taking the initial leap of going, let's try without it first now you're doing the iceberg uh you've done some performances over at the adelaide fringe you're doing one show only at the athenaeum theater in melbourne tonight yes at 7 p.m yes uh, and then on to sydney for one show only and then over and then over to perth so and then over to you're perth kind yeah. of doing things in reverse yeah we're just doing it we're, we could just took the dates that we could get basically <laughs> <laughs> it was it's such a short i think initially we were coming over just to do that week for adelaide fringe and then um my good friends the producers went we should do some other shows and i thought really we could just have a holiday and they're like, no, we should do some other shows. So I am doing other shows. Well, I'm glad you are because yeah, it's me nice too. to have you back. I mean, it's a shame to, to not have you doing a new show at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival coming up. But I also appreciate that, hey, comedians are allowed to have lives and do other things. They don't just have to sweat every night in a, in a, in a, in a room for my entertainment. So Sometimes. Well, I think it's also good to give um, people a break. 
I think. And presumably to give yourself a break as well, to recharge, to think yeah. about your material, find new angles, new directions. Yeah, well, I've, I've written a new show, and that's um, I've, I did that two weeks before I left the UK, and I did that at a comedy festival up there um, in Leicester. And so I've got, now I've got six months until Edinburgh, and the show has a good first draft. So I'm probably in the best position that I've ever been. And it's really nice to be able to start a show 18 months after the first show, because then you get time to, ideas get time to gestate and jokes get time to sharpen and then once I've done it in Edinburgh for a month then I'll probably bring it out to Australia next year and you won't get a a new show you know you'll get a show that's polished and and worked in and rather than me starting a show here and trying to chisel out what it is on stage or off stage, but in the process of a festival. Yeah. So that'll be nice. It'll be nice to bring a, a big shiny product back to Australia. Something road-tested and tightened. and Yeah. yeah. Well, the, like doing Iceberg, I haven't done that since Edinburgh last year, and doing it in Adelaide, it's the best it's ever been. I had the most fun. I'm not bored of any of it. I had a great time. So it, it sort of gave me a taste of what it's like to bring a fully-fledged show back here or rather than starting it here. That, that line... What you just said about not being bored of it strikes me as something that must be a real challenge for comedians, doing the same routines over and over again, night after night, week after week, in the confines of a festival or elsewhere. Um, How do you stop yourself getting bored with material? It used to be... I'd never actually thought about it till maybe a year and a half ago. I never never got bored of my material. It's like, well, I love this bit. If if it makes people laugh, I'm like, I'll say that. I'll say anything that makes people laugh. And then there's a comic, James Acaster, from the UK, and he mentioned uh, last year, he's like, oh, I just want to get onto some new material. I'm sick of saying last year's show. And I thought about it. I'm like, no, I don't really get that. And then with this show, I really enjoy the material. But for some reason, I just have a thirst to get new stuff out. So I don't know. I just... um I still have the thing, if, if it makes people laugh, I'm happy to say it again. Cool. Yeah. Well, clearly uh, the iceberg does make people laugh. I, I gave it four stars in the age uh, last year in 2014. And thank you very much for that. I'm very... And the uh, show's even welcome. better now. Well, that's what I'm thinking. It's kind of... For, and if people did see it last year, are they going to see the same show if they come back and see it tonight at the Athenaeum, for example? Or is it... Is it essentially the same show but just tighter or is there new material? Or Well, uh, I'm going to ask the Ath. I don't know if they've got a show afterwards. If they don't have a show afterwards, I might just do like 10 minutes of new stuff in there just to say thanks for coming back. So I'll, uh, I'll, I'll find out if there'll be new material or not tonight. But there's definitely it's definitely sharper, tighter, more jokes in there now. Flick, it's been lovely having you on. Yeah, lovely to see you again. Thanks for having me. My very great pleasure. Catch you next time. Chunky Moves' new production, Depth of Field, is being presented as part of Dance Massive. And Anouk van Dyke from Chunky Move joins me in the studio now. Anouk, good morning. Good to see you. Hi, good morning. Now, I've heard that this new work, amongst other things, is being described as a love letter to Melbourne, and in particular, the light in Melbourne at this time of year, because it's an outdoor performance. Yeah, yeah. When I moved here um, in 2012, uh, I wanted to work site-specific because I thought, if anywhere in the world you can do it, it's Australia, right? Um, and then, and then my the first well, then yeah. my, my first work was in October for the Melbourne Festival, and Brett Shee, in that time, the artistic director of the festival, looked at me and had a big frown, and he said, well, it's Melbourne. So I didn't know at, at that time what that meant, but now, of course, I understand what that means. Uh, and that said, knowing that March is, you know, 
For Melbourne standards, a fairly stable month, although it's pretty capricious at the moment, I have to say. Um, but knowing that March, and I discovering actually that March was such a beautiful month here, and the light particularly, and the light around dusk was so beautiful, I was like, this is my moment. Now I can make an outdoor show. So that's what we're doing for Dance Massive. Yeah. Now, one of the things that intrigues me uh, about this work is that um, it's it's a, a site-specific work in that it's created outside on the forecourt between the malt house and uh, the, the building that... Um, the VCA buildings. Yes. So, yeah. uh, so it's out there, but it's also, as we've said, it's a season-specific work. You're, yeah. you're making use of the specifically the conditions of the light yeah, at this yeah. time of year, which yeah. fascinates me. So, so we do ten shows starting as of tomorrow, which is really exciting at the holiday, long holiday weekend that we have this special treat for Melbourne. Um, and like, so we start tomorrow and we finish in the fort on the 14th of March. So in that time, the light has shifted dramatically. So actually the best pick to really see Melbourne in March is to see our first show tomorrow and then the last show at the end of the season because the light will be drastically different over that time of the year because this is the month and the period of time that sunset starts to tip a lot. And before you know it, suddenly we get into this very quick uh, change to darkness. And we are now at the threshold of that rapid change. So it's really nice to see what that does to the work. I'm, I'm curious to know, what has it done to the work already, just through the rehearsal process? Well, through the rehearsal process, first of all, uh, we've worked a lot outside and we've gotten really acquainted with our with the locals in the, in the precinct, which has been lovely, because uh, the forecourt is a, a thoroughfare for everybody in the precinct. So there's lots of people either coming home from work or having done their groceries at the IGA at Sturt Street, um, people walking their dogs, jogging, getting pizzas. Um, it's a, a very lively place, and every day we discover new people, new locals, and we recruited some locals to be somehow involved in the show. So um, since they're there anyway, so we said, well, show up in our performance. We, we don't mind if you do your evening stroll at that time. Um, so that's been really lovely to get to know the people there, and then working out Outdoors for the dancers is, is a challenge. You know, dancers don't normally don't work in site-specific outdoor conditions because the it's most of the time the surrounding is too harsh for their bodies. I was thinking that because the the fact that they're warming up before a show to make sure that their their muscles and their bodies are supple and relaxed and ready to perform, and then so going from a rehearsal studio where the temperature is controlled to suddenly then being outside and the the, the sudden shift of temperatures that must impact on. Their physicality. Yeah, yeah. So they are having a very, um, very um, rigorous way of preparing right now and getting their gear ready because they have all protective gear to work outdoors because the surface is sort of cement and gravel. So it's a, a fairly harsh and like sandpaper surface. And the dancers joke about that it, it's very great exfoliating their skin. <laughs> So they have very smooth skins from it. Um, but no, there's a lot of preparation in there and a lot of uh, mindfulness before they go on site because it's... I think I think they treat it really well, and I think it's safe what we're doing, but it looks really fearless. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm, I'm just thinking also the fact that 
it's a surface that's not entirely stable. It could yeah. it can shift slightly underfoot. Yeah. How is that impacting on your choreographic language, let alone on? Yeah, well, the actually, we we decided to really embrace it and use the the slippery sliding quality of the surface. And there's the inevitable dust that blows up. And one of the dancers has contact lenses, so we had to find a solution how <laughs> how we could still be dancing. And the dance is too extreme for him to wear his glasses, so you'll see. You know, come and see the show. <laughs> you yeah. understand what, what solution we found. Well, one of the things that immediately that makes me think of is the fact that it's so lucky that you are making this work with such skilled dancers because yeah. their their muscle memory and knowledge means that they can they can keep their footing yeah. in, in, and know where to be stand, even without glasses. If they can't, if somebody is very short-sighted, for example, and can't see what is around them and the people around them, they would know just by... No, the... these dancers are really, really aware, and they also they take in the, the... There's a lot of traffic there, right? There's cars, trams, bikes, uh, scooters, whatever, whatever is passing there. And they also take that in account for their dancing that they work with the energy of what's around them um, and I have three amazing dancers doing it they are like fearless yeah just to, them alone is like a treat to watch them work on that big side because it's a very very big side side you know it's the size of almost a football field so dance no, never takes place on such huge you know state theater here is nothing compared to the size of that side so the dancers have taken on that with um, a lot of lot of energy and and yeah they they cough up the dust but they really enjoy it because <laughs> they are you know they are they they eat space these people and and they love it yeah this is I'm really now even more intrigued than ever to see the work I wanted to see it anyway a, a new work from Chunky Move is always something to anticipate but all of the challenges that this environment is creating for you as a choreographer yeah. for the dancers themselves well it's also really slow to make it because if I say oh because I look at them from a distance, right? So they have in-ear pieces on and I have a microphone because otherwise we cannot communicate with each other. And if I tell them, oh, just move back a little bit, then that means they have to move back seven meters, eight meters, nine meters. But from my side, it looks they're moving back like half a meter. So those kind of things are quite challenging for them to negate because they say, well, you've asked me to go back 10 meters. What's my choreography to get there? <laughs> so there's a lot of improvisation skills needed for them to, to cover terrain. It sounds like making this work must have been both challenging but also liberating because being able to embrace everything from, as we've said, passes by the weather conditions yeah. and unstable surface instead of the, the usual exacting and precision that you would yeah. have to work with inside the studio, yeah. working outside, this really must be a fascinating step artistically for you. Yeah, it's really interesting. And also deliberately I wanted to be on that forecourt because what we... What we have naturally, because of the thoroughfare nature of it, is that there are these similar su simultaneous realities taking place all the time. So it's almost like as if the dance is one of of the cells that you see a happening uh, on that site. So you'll get all these like individual narratives from coincidental bypasses that co coincide with the dance but also kind of create another, another narrative around it. And that I found really interesting. And you can only do that outside. You can't do that uh, in a safe environment of a theatre. Yeah. And as we said, the fact, adding on to that then is also the unique quality of the light that will be changing from the first performance yeah. through until the last performance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Like the, in the, in, on, at the beginning of the season, the, the sunlight will just 
peak along the high rises on the right side, and then by the end of the season, it's over the left sides. And so we're predicting a little bit like the energy at the beginning of the show, but we can't fully do it. So last night was like epic. It was really beautiful how it started, and then it had this daunting drop and shift, and it became really grim and gray for a while. And then the lights on the high, uh, highways started to come up, and it became kind of poetic and soft and orange light in the background. So it had this beautiful shift. And then nights that we have an overcast sky is actually really powerful because you, everything is visible really, really clearly. And by the time they go into the end of the show, you see every little speck of dust on their skin. Whereas with the blue sky, actually there's a whole different dynamic and it's more uh, poetic and, 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 and like a fairy tale in the beginning. So, you know, you can buy your ticket for it, but you can't really <laughs> make a right reservation for the light design. So that's, that's the gamble. But the dancers will be stable and good. So yeah. The work is called Depth of Field. It's the latest move by Chunky Move. It's on from uh, tomorrow, Friday the 6th of March through to Saturday the 14th of March at the Cooper's Malthouse Forecourt. Booking through malthousetheatre.com.au or 9685 5111. That's 9685 or malthousetheatre.com.au for Chunky Move's Depth of Field. Uh, and also more information about it at dancemassive.com.au. Anouk, as a final question for you, obviously you're caught up in making this work, but any other uh, events on as part of Dance Massive that you're particularly excited to see? Oh, lots, lots, and I'm really frustrated that some of the, them I can't see because it coincides with my first week and then I can't get away, but I'm looking forward to, uh, to see uh, Anthony Hamilton's new work, absolutely, with uh, Alice Dare, McIndoe. I can't wait to see that because I've seen a little preview of that and it's going to be that's pretty amazing. That's one I of the think. ones on my radar as well, if only because they've made little robots to... Uh, to, to uh, create both the sound design and the set design yes. so that should be intriguing Anouk van Dijk, always a pleasure to see you Thanks a lot You are tuned to Triple R. We're talking visual art over the next couple of interviews, uh, including coming up the Street Life exhibition in about 10 minutes, which we're going to chat about. But right now, we're going to chat about Albert Tucker, The Truth in Masquerade, which is an exhibition of the works of Australian artist Albert Tucker, who was part of the Heidi Circle and... Not surprisingly, it's on at the Heidi Museum of Modern Art. Joining us to tell us about the exhibition is curator Linda Short. Linda, good morning. Good morning, Richard. Now, Tucker is a significant Australian artist. Why is he such a significant modernist in Australia? Well, you touched upon it there in saying that he's certainly got an important significance to Heidi. And um, this exhibition we're talking about this morning is part of an ongoing series of exhibitions that we have in a purpose-built gallery called the Albert and Barbara Tucker Gallery. And um, this was built... It's been part of Heidi since 2006, um, when we received a, a very significant gift um, from the artist estate of more than 200 artworks um, to the museum's permanent collection. And so we now have an ongoing series of exhibition projects that draw on that collection of Tucker's work, um, as well as borrowing works from other um, locations. And these alternate between... Um, 
projects that look at his solo practice, so a particular theme or period, and then projects that look at his work in the context of other artists, so it might be a theoretical context or a contemporary context. Um, we've been doing these exhibitions now for about nine years, um, and people do ask, you know, how can you continue to come up with new ideas or, or look at different aspects of his oeuvre? But he... Um, he began his career in the late 30s and he worked up until the late 1990s, a prolific artist and an artist who was very much at the forefront of trying to progress um, art during the 30s and 40s, looking to examples of the European modernists. Um, so he is a particularly important figure in the history of Australian art. And not only in Australian art, but I think uh, in terms of his timing and place in Australian history at that at, at what really yes. is a pivotal point in Australian cultural history um, a moving away from uh, British culture and the influence of, Austra- of American yes. culture which is documented in his art his paintings of kind of American soldiers and, yes. and young women well he was also trying to, to create a local vernacular style of modernism and as were the other artists associated with Heidi which are referred to as the Heidi Circle or the Angry Penguins um, because of the um, controversial art journal called The Angry Penguins that John Reed um, and his circle published within the publishing firm Reed and Harris. Again, Tucker was a part of that um, publishing firm. He did see himself as a social and cultural commentator, so he saw that the art they were making had a social purpose. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's beyond his artistic style, but also the kind of ideas that he was expressing in his works at that time. Now, this exhibition, Albert Tucker, The Truth in Masquerade, uh, looking very much at Tucker's kind of... Uh, influences the popular culture, influences theatre and performance and circus and so on, that influenced him in his earlier years as an artist. Yes, that's right, particularly those formative years of the 30s and the 40s. And the idea really came um, many years ago when I was interviewing one of Tucker's early associates. Her name was Pauline McCarthy, and she ran a very unique lending library in Fitzroy um, during the war years when it was difficult to get your hands on interesting reading material. And she was a popular sitter for Tucker in his paintings, his portrait paintings, and actually a number of the Heidi artists, circle artists. And so we didn't know very much about this lady and went to interview her. And she, we were talking about Tucker's style of portrait painting and the characters that kind of populate his images of that time. They have this kind of mask-like, clown-like quality. And she was talking about his fascination with the Australian vaudevillian, Roy Reen, um, who's also known as Mo from the comic duo Stiffy and Mo. And Tucker's fascination with this trademark black and white very surreal, expressive, quite grotesque makeup that he would wear on stage. And so that kind of got the ideas um, started as I began to explore perhaps the influence of that type of performance on his art. And then in 2008, we received a very significant gift of his photographs, his own black and white photographs from um, his widow, Barbara Tucker, and more than 500 images. And within that, there was a really strong subset of photos documenting places like the Tivoli Theatre, Luna Park, Worth Circus, um, professional stage wrestling. So all these kind of popular vernacular working class entertainment venues um, 
And it was obvious to see how some of that imagery correlated with his painted motifs at the time um, and the importance that these sort of um, attractions or shows had had on his art. So is the exhibition then presenting photographs and paintings side by side so viewers can can draw their own conclusions? Yes. Yes, so there's um, quite a number of Tucker's own photographs from the 40s and then paintings that relate to um, some of those images as well as his um, works on paper, also, we borrowed some material from the State Library um, and the Arts Centre Melbourne, their performing arts collection. So they have the new theatre collection, and Tucker was actually involved in designing sets and backdrops for that theatre company in the late now, 30s, early 40s. This is to, uh, now having to remember what I, I know of the new theatre mm. from... Um, uh, I, I actually work in a laneway just around the corner from where the new theatre operated. Ah, so there's, okay. there's still a sign kind of painted on one of the bluestone walls right. that just says new theatre and a little arrow yes. pointing towards them. And uh, Jeff and Jill Sparrow wrote about the new theatre yes. uh, uh, in their book Radical Melbourne. So this is a theatre yes. company uh, with a very uh, strong communist kind of It was a communist front organisation, really, and yeah. it began... Well, it was affiliated with the New Theatre League in America, which came out of the Great Depression and started as a people's theatre. And then as after the outbreak of war, it began to present um, plays that were assisting the war effort. Um, and so Tucker himself, he was, we've talked about his, you know, um, as a cultural commentator, and he was a member of the Communist Party in the early 40s, a member of the artist branch, even though he had quite unique views about how art in, um, intersected with communism. Um, so he wasn't really aligned with the hardcore social realists. He, he saw that art should have a social role to play, but not at the expense of an artist individual expression. But it was through that um, the party that he actually came into contact with the new theatre and he designed sets for at least three plays that we know of Um, and there are some wonderful photographs that document some of those backdrops and scenes um, that he painted that we've borrowed from the new theatre collection. Fantastic. Now, um, given that as I said, this exhibition, Albert Tucker, The Truth in Masquerade, is looking at more those earlier works, Mm. is this predating the images of modern evil series? This is around the time Time. of that iconic series and I haven't included images from that particular Series, but the works on display certainly do um, relate strongly to. So I guess what's interesting is you're looking at Tucker's, um, he's tapping into this nightlife that's really come into being because of the um, World War II and the influx of American troops into Melbourne and the nightlife that they solicited. So Melbourne's completely changed, and, you know, and as a, you know, the cultural map of Melbourne is what was once a closed-down city is now very open. Um, the government have extended the operating hours of clubs, theatres, restaurants. And so I guess for Tucker, he starts to use these sort of motifs of the stage, the lighting. There's a lot of spotlighting in his paintings of that time, the masks, the makeup. Um, but he starts to blur the boundaries between the stage and the street. So he as in the images of Modern Evil series, you see these kind of um, social liaisons happening on a street that could almost look like a theatre backdrop. Linda Short, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Richard.
joining me now in the studio. We're going to uh, we're speaking to a couple of artists who are going to tell us about the latest stage of, a, of an ongoing project, uh, an artistic collaboration between Australia and Indonesia. From Cake Industries, we have Jesse Stevens, uh, and uh, from Indonesia, we have uh, Bimo Suryochati joining us. So, welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. So, um, Jesse, let's start with you. Cake Industries uh, is a, a duo. Uh, That's right. Uh, you and Dean Peterson. You've been working together for a while now and working collaboratively with uh, Bimo and his colleague uh, on a series of projects. This is the latest kind of outcome of that. That's right. Yeah, yeah. This is um, this latest project, I guess, is an evolution of observations we've made on previous collaborations with Bimo and Alti. And I guess it was born just from the collaborations themselves and the observations uh, between the hometowns uh, where we exist, both in Melbourne and Yogyakarta in Indonesia. Yeah. And, Bimo, the work that is being shown here in Melbourne uh, with the exhibition titled Street Life uh, being shown at Space in Collins Street. Now, we've got video projections, I understand, Mm -hmm. um, installation works, and... Something about robotics as well, is that right? Yes, uh, it actually what's shown in the gallery is just like the what we call the trace, the, the trace of the work because actually our work is presented on the street itself. You know, we we make this this thing we found in the street and we create them with mechanically and robotic things, so they they live and we put them like. Uh, with the gorilla style, and we film from somewhere. <laughs> so filming people's responses, yeah, and reactions to like the machines. That. Yes, yeah. yeah. And so then, when people come to the gallery, as you said, they'll, they'll, it's almost like closing your eyes and seeing the after image from looking at a, at a bright light or mm-hmm. something like that. You're you're uh, exhibiting the the responses to those works rather than the works themselves. That's right. Yeah. So th- this is mostly focused on the outcomes from the first four weeks of the project uh, in Indonesia, in Yogyakarta. And so there are four sculptures that we created there and we're showing the video of these sculptures with some sculptural elements uh, to make it feel as if you're part of that culture. And as we continue working through the Melbourne leg, that which we're halfway through at the moment, um, these Melbourne objects will start appearing in the gallery too so there's currently two there so far and uh, on opening night next week we'll be waking them up so you can see some of them live out of context in the gallery space but yeah live all the same waking them up I'm intrigued <laughs> <laughs> it certainly sounds more dramatic than turning them on or switching them on <laughs> uh, given that this is work that is done on the street mm-hmm. uh, in both Yogyakarta and Melbourne how do people in the different cities react when they to the work uh, are the, the responses in Melbourne different to the responses of people who encounter the work by accident in in Yogyakarta? Yes, it's it's quite different, but it's always fun. It's always new. It's always uh, and we we didn't expect like any particular response from people. We just just whatever happened. It's it's good for us. It's like you know we also try to get new meaning with with all of this thing we do in the street with the object itself and also the people's and life surround it so it's it's always fun yeah um i'm just what kind of reactions do people what are the most extreme reactions that people have had are, are people just befuddled confused there's generally two reactions there's two types of people and we're wondering if maybe there's something to this there's 
There's the person who smiles and laughs and then continues to observe for quite mm. some time. And the second reaction is a quick glance and walking on as if it's an everyday occurrence that a rubbish bin folds into um, a plush interior with spinning roses and music box playing. It's, it's, it's a funny thing. Happens all the time. That's right. <laughs> but, but we have funny... Uh Response in Jogja, you remember we, we had Ooh, the, yeah. big, the big robot, the food cart. We put uh, the leg so it can move itself. But people no, there's the man inside there. <laughs> They're Children. arguing, it's a robot. No, it's a man inside. <laughs> Uh, I'm, uh, the fact that some people are reacting so overtly and really mm-hmm. questioning you and questioning the work versus mm-hmm. those people who are just kind of like blinking and then walking on as if nothing had happened. That's a, a fascinating diversity of responses. Mm-hmm. That's right. And I guess our aim was to jolt people from their everyday existence to to make them suddenly wake up from what some artists have called the grey world, their point between point A and point B, the all of the space in between you ignore as you're focusing on where your destination is to jolt them from that experience and to notice what their surrounds actually contain and that this is our culture this is our life our life is led walking between point a and point b and these jolts that we're aiming for it's just beautiful to actually see the responses happen live uh, from a distance discreetly (laughs) how discreetly are you being if you're filming this so uh, sometimes we, we there's lots of different ways we're having to find ways of doing this. Um, sometimes we actually pretend as if we're part of the crowd of people accumulating around the object uh, with a befuddled look on our face and a hidden camera. Other times we actually have to hide in surrounds and from a distance. Um, our intention is to make sure that we never draw attention to these objects themselves by standing directly in front with a camera and saying, hey, everyone, come and have a look. We want these to be discreet. So it's been an interesting experience trying to keep that balance of yeah, both sorry. documenting but still <laughs> allowing yeah. the experience to naturally happen. Yeah. <laughs> now, how did this collaboration come about, BMO? How the, the collaboration between yourselves and, mm. and Cake Industries, how did this begin? So it begins uh, 2012. We, we met that first time, Jesse, Tin, me and Alti. I'm, I'm in Jogja with Alti and we do this collaboration live link through the internet connection, so we see each other with a screen. That's the first time, and then and then things go on. We keep talking, we keep sending email and everything, and ideas just come up. Just now, here we are. <laughs> so, and how how did that very first connection come about? Did you seek each other out, or well, we were both uh, working to support another creative project for another artist so we were just helping out where we could uh, offering some assistance it was a project through Multicultural Arts Victoria uh, and they were offering assistance on the remote end while we were offering assistance on the Melbourne end um, just using some of our skills as artists as you do you do many other jobs Um, and we ended up making that that connection from then on and deciding well let's find a way to collaborate as artists together yeah now, beyond just the, the the making of these devices, these machines and these robots and putting them on the street and filming it, there's a deeper meaning to the work. Uh, tell us about that. The uh, I believe the work you're doing has its origins or is referencing and reflecting a, an older religious tradition in, about the spirit of a place and the spirit of an object. Yep, that's right. Uh, I think that it's uh, quite big 
difference between Jogja and Melbourne is that Jogja has a long, long historical things, and we believe that there's spirit everywhere. Things is has their own spirit. This this thing is have their own life. Uh, you know, like they also part of the history. So when they're coming and they see that as something is really meaningful it's actually for us it's oh, really because it's 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 just happen every day so we're not like very <laughs> pay attention on that till these guys well we can do about that animism like yeah, the, the title um, that a lot of anthropologists call it is animism, and it ha- has its basis in a lot of early religion um, in terms of uh, objects containing some form of spirit, and there, there's many different ways of interpreting it, but I guess one way which um, Dean and myself constantly talk about is the idea in which through using a tool or through creating an object, we leave some of our part, some part of ourselves in it, whether that's actually a physical um, uh, mark you leave by leaving a thumbprint or or leaving some aspect of yourself, or whether simply through making uh, a mechanical object that requires programming, you're actually putting some of your intentions, your your ideas into the object through um, programming and, and electronics. So it's interesting to explore these ideas in terms of relating it both to contemporary ideas of leaving aspects of yourself spiritually and also traditional ideas of animism in terms of an object taking on aspects of the the people around them. As well as the exhibition itself, you're also offering some workshops for kids, I understand, so they can make their own robotic devices. That's right, yes. We... we uh, trying to show kids that they can both create these moving objects themselves whilst at the same time allowing them enough space to explore. So they'll be using cardboard boxes and a bunch of uh, general craft materials, but with some magic that we're bringing along with uh, motors and batteries and bits and pieces and showing them how to make these things move. And it's, we, we ran some in Indonesia, and we're hoping to see the same kind of results here in Melbourne. Yeah, it's, it's like... The fun part of it, <laughs> playing with kids and their imaginations, just think whatever you want. And Robot girlfriend. Yeah. Yeah, we saw one of those. Uh, Jesse and Bimo, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank and, you. And um, I think while I'm wandering around the CBD for over the next couple of weeks, I might have to keep my eyes open for some, uh, <laughs> some robotic action. That's right. <laughs> thanks for coming in, guys. Thank you. Right now, we're going to talk about a performance, well, three performances of The Vagina Monologues, an episodic play which was written and performed in 1996 and has gone on to uh, win acclaim and generate interest and, I suspect, raise an eyebrow or two all around the world. Um, Melbourne is hosting a staged reading of Eve Ensler's The Vagina Monologues for three nights only um, as a fundraiser to support Safe Steps Family 
Family Violence Response Centre, formerly known as the Women's Domestic Violence Crisis Service. Joining me in the studio to tell us more, the director of the Vagina Monologues, Cheryl Cardozo. Cheryl, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. My very great pleasure. So, to begin with, um, tell us more about the Vagina Monologues. For people who've not perhaps seen a production of the work staged or read before, what are they in for, apart from a show about vaginas and the people who have them? <laughs> exactly. The show is really for anyone who has a vagina or knows someone who has a vagina. Uh, Eve Ensler in 1996 conducted about 200 interviews with women around mostly in America but a little bit around the world and she took those interviews and turned them into monologues Uh, and there are some that are very funny um, some that are obviously less funny and sad and poignant Uh, but really it's a, a broad strokes experience of what it's like to navigate the world with a vagina. So we're covering everything from birth, orgasm, menstruation, uh, the, the full gamut of the, the, the vaginal experience. Exactly. As well as uh, for there's, there's a new monologue that she, well, relatively new, that she wrote in 2004 in conjunction with a group of trans women. So it's also about women who desire to have a vagina that weren't born with one. And so one of the things that is great about this Melbourne production of of the vagina monologues is just how inclusive it is because uh, trans women are represented in there which is uh, I think a, a fantastic step in the right direction yeah well I was because of the trans monologue in particular I was really committed to making sure that we had a diverse and inclusive cast so I really spread my networks far and wide and that's the beauty of social media that actually I only knew personally a third of the cast before we started going and so I was able to um, include two trans women in our cast which I think is fantastic and, you know, it's really just about the whole experience of vagina desire. Yeah. Um, and I'm also just loving that this interview allows us to say vagina as many times as possible on radio. So exactly. I've, I've had more conversations about vaginas in the last few months than I have in a long time. It's fantastic. When did you first encounter the play itself? I actually was lucky enough to see it off-Broadway in its first production. I went with my mum when I was in my early 20s, and I was completely blown away at the time by just the the topics that were covered and the fact that they were saying vagina on stage and even though the show is 20 years old and some aspects of it might seem a little dated and we have updated a few aspects there's still you know one in three women in Australia will experience violence at some point in their lifetime so the issues that the play raises are still really relevant and important. Now in terms of adjusting and updating the play is that done in conjunction with the writer or because I'm just that 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 negotiation process must be an intriguing and interesting one but also one that presumably the writer wants this play to be accessible to be contemporary and to be as widely staged as possible exactly so Eve Ensler allows any uh, community group around the world to put out a production of the show as long as they raise money to prevent violence and in the director's pack there's notes where they say you can change this you can change that um, we've added, we've changed some language because um, there are words that are very American, so you know we changed diaper to nappy and things like that, and so things like that are okay. But 
um, you can't we can't make too many changes. Yeah, well, absolutely, you've got to be true to the the artistic focus of the work and and, and respect the the author's intent. Exactly, and and we make it very clear that the show was written in 1996, so there are some things that have changed. But for example, there's one monologue that was created after conversations with women in Bosnian refugee camps, and while the Bosnian Kosovo war is over, I think that the experience of being a woman living in a time of war and civil unrest is obviously replicated in many places around the world. Now, as well as this staged reading of the Vagina Monologues, which is happening tonight, tomorrow night, and Saturday night, the 5th, 6th, and 7th of March, in the Sacred Heart Oratory at the Abbotsford Convent, and given the history of the Abbotsford Convent, I think it's great that the the, the reading is happening there, kind of reclaiming that space. Um, so there's the reading itself each night. There's a, a silent auction as yep. well, because, as we've said, this is a fundraiser for Safe Steps, the Family Violence Response Center. So uh, doors open at 6.30 each night. You've yep. got a, a silent auction. What are the, the goods that are being auctioned? Oh, there's some fantastic goods. We have over $6,000 worth of merchandise and services. So there's everything from some jewelry and some clothing, some discount uh, tarot card readings, all the way up to a fantastic um, all-inclusive two night two nights at a bed and breakfast in the Arrow Valley. That's um, actually, when I went there, I had the best cheesecake I've ever had in my life. So <laughs> that's valued at $1,100. So that could be a really good deal for somebody. Absolutely. And all the money raised, as we said, goes to supporting Safe Steps to enable them to provide family violence intervention, support and advocacy. So it is a great cause and it should be a, a great night of entertainment as well, covering the full breadth of the experience of anybody who has or indeed uh, would like to have a vagina. Exactly. Cheryl Cardozo, many thanks for joining us here at Triple R. Thank you very much. Richard Watt on Smart Arts on Triple R. Now, as I mentioned earlier in the show, it's almost time for Dance Massive, uh, a biennial event celebrating contemporary dance, running from the 10th until the 22nd of March and presented by Dance House, Arts House and the Malt House in association with Oz Dance Victoria. Brings together the best choreographers and contemporary dance work from around the country. And one of the works that I'm very much looking forward to seeing as part of Dance Massive is called Long Grass. And its creator and choreographer, Vicky Van Hoot, joins us on the line now. Vicky, good morning. Hi. How are you? Really well, thank you. Really well indeed. Now, this is a dance work which gives the audience the opportunity to go uh, to go north, to go to the top end and discover what it means to live long grass, to, uh, which is uh, essentially the, the term for Aboriginal people who are perceived as being homeless but may not actually be. They may be just visiting relatives, staying somewhere uh, and, and, and sleeping rough temporarily. Tell us about the creation of this work. What inspired it? Uh, it was inspired because one of my mentors went to live Long Grass and I don't think Long Grass is necessarily uh, a geographic... It is a geographical term but it's not just about living conditions geographically it's also a state of mind and uh, my one of my mentors went to live there and I thought I could go and have an artist residency and then when I realized what it was years later I was like oh 
quite curious uh, that such a, an exotic term is used for people, you know, living rough in and around Darwin. And I, I was curious as to why there were so many Aboriginal people living rough and, you know, what were their, you know, what were the reasons, what were their stories, why does it come to be? But I guess, you know, the disparity between, you know, the rich and the poor or the, the haves and the have-nots is always going to be there. And it, it sometimes it's because, you know, in remote areas there aren't, um, there, there isn't access to, you know, hospitals. Uh, sometimes somebody just wants to go get away for a while, but they don't have enough money for, you know, the big plush hotel uh, sometimes maybe they've broken the law and they've been to prison, but they haven't had, they haven't, um, they haven't experienced Aboriginal law yet. So they're they're staying away from community. And I I thought it was, it needed a voice. I think um, when we think of Aboriginal people, we think of our culture as this thing that exists in the past. And I, I wanted to say that it is this strong thing that I'm proud of that exists under all kinds of conditions. And so that's what inspired me to make it. And uh, I've been collaborating with a local man, a local Larrakia man, Gary Lang, and he just has a way of telling a story that what it does is it highlights uh, this um, prevalence of comedy you know a black comedy that kind of gets people through the day and i just think this is such a wonderful i don't know it's such a wonderful outlook that that uh trappings the the trappings of modern day society maybe don't indicate necessarily indicate honor and courage and you know the care for the people around you that people can live you know, we have, as human beings, we have this innate will to live and to survive and to really enjoy life. Now, for people who haven't seen your work before, and I myself have only seen one work of yours previously, uh, Brilliant, which was also on at the Malthouse several years ago following its original Sydney season, um, uh, you use a lot of other elements, uh, artistic components, so uh, voiceover and storytelling. Uh, set design is always seems to be a key element of your work as well. Why is it important for you as a choreographer to draw in other artistic elements to enrich your work and the stories you tell? I, I've got to be honest, I think I'm a little bit sneaky and a little bit cheeky and a little bit greedy in that I use my my experience as a dancer and my opportunity as a choreographer and dance maker to explore those other elements. But I think it's indicative of, you know, a great, my greater um, practice that because Aboriginal... Um, art expression or cultural expression is inherently um, interdisciplinary. I like to... I, I, I started doing that to affirm as an urban Aboriginal person from who hails from DAPDO, of all places, in um, New South Wales, I just found that this was a way of affirming um, my identity and giving me, uh, using my dance and using all of those practices as a way, as a meaningful way to affirm 
you know, my my cultural, you know, my my cultural experience and roots. But it's, you know, I, again, I, I have a penchant for humour. There's always got to be a little, you know, I've always got to have a laugh. And I love, I don't know, I love it as I get older, probably as my body claps out. <laughs> I, I, enjoy, I enjoy the backstage. I enjoy um, the hands-on experience. I enjoy sitting down and concentrating on something. So usually when I make sets, they're very kind of intricate intricate things so before in brilliant i had a 16 meter river made of two and a half thousand cards that stood up like dominoes this one i have grass where each blade each blade of long grass is individually woven using northern territory basket weaving techniques and we do have other cups of grass made out of um drinking straws that are strewn and stuck to the floor so it's I don't know it, it what because when there is this there is this idea that you know I'm preparing my dance ground and I'm preparing the space for the story. Now, now yeah. t- tell us as well as those elements, those uh, kind of design elements and storytelling elements. Tell us about your choreographic language um, and how that's evolved as well. Because certainly the the impression I get uh, from having seen Brilliant and uh, and what what else I've read about your work, um, your work has been described as, as demanding in terms of what you ask of your dancers. But um, yeah, maybe maybe that could ha- that could have more to do with my personality. I'm, I, I am quite demanding as a person. <laughs> maybe um, I think it's uh, sorry to cut you off. That's um, good. I, I was just eager to answer. Uh, well, I, I'm a graduate of a place called NASDA and I did dance with um, Bangara Dance Theatre. So um, NASDA is an acronym that stands for the National Aboriginal and Islander Skills Development Association. Wrap your tongue around that one. Uh, it's a dance college that specialises in both Western and cultural dance forms. And we go to different... Um, every year we have a cultural residency and we go to different places and we immerse ourselves in a community's you know, uh, day-to-day living. And so the language I really found the probably more than just, you know, more than just the dance, I found the incorporation of gesture and the intricacies and the, of, you know, of the day-to-day kind of body postures. The, the And also that the dancers... The, the dancers employed a different type of coordination. I don't know if this is, you know, highfalutin, but the, so the coordination for some of the dancers up in the Northern Territory is, is that they, they employ a form of parallel locomotor. So you're swinging the same arm as leg. And I just thought that was just really interesting. And so what I created was, um, a series of, um, exercises based around moving to and from this parallel locomotor and then we took it to the floor like we explored all the parameters and then we tr- we uh, there is a physical rigor that's based on the flight or fight kind of premise so it's you know the the quick shift of motion that you would employ if you're playing basketball or if you're you know playing rugby and i, I quite like that because the men are you know 
stereotypes are the men are the hunters and the women are the, are the gatherers, but I quite like this idea that the women are strong in my pieces and that the men have a softer side and that the women can be fierce. I, I quite like the fact that the women, you know, the women hold their own and that hold, you know, they hold their own on stage as well as in terms of being characters. And I know that in my family and a lot of families, you know, it's the, the mother figure who is the linchpin in the family. So this is the reason I, you know, and maybe in a cultural context, I was a little bit jealous that the guys got to move around and they were, you know, they, they were doing all this virtuous, virtuosic movement while we were dancing as a hum, which was equally as important, but we were dancing in unison behind them, kind of propping them up. Well, I was like, no, man, this can't be. Yeah. So I kind of, I don't know, this has been an outlet for me to really explore that other type of physicality that women don't necessarily always get a chance to explore. Now I'm even looking forward to the work even more than I was previously. So, uh, um, Vicky, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. And as I said, I'm really looking forward to seeing Long Grass when it comes down to Melbourne next week. Great. Thanks. All the best. Bye. Bye. probably whistle that entire theme by now. Hello, Cerise Howard. Welcome back to Triple R. Oh, thank you, Richard Watts. It's a joy as ever to be here, opposite to you. Uh, Plato's cave co-host extraordinaire and smart arts film reviewer of long standing. And... The night vagina monologue is this Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Good grief, Thursday. That's even today. That's today. Hell's yes. bells. Doors open 6:30 p.m. at the convent. Performance at seven after the silent auction. Yeah, ah, very excitement. Um, Are you looking? Uh, rehearsals have been fun. Uh, absolutely fun. Yes, good to get uh, a little out of my comfort zone. I'm not a total stranger to the stage, but this is uh, still um, something a little new. And uh, yeah, it's look, it's it's such. Uh, an iconic play and uh, it's a joy to be a part of. Excellent. And uh, as a reminder, the funds raised from the performances of the Vagina Monologues that Cerise is uh, performing tonight, tomorrow and Saturday uh, down at the Convent, uh, funds raised go to support Safe Steps Family Violence Response Centre. Yeah. So, let's talk film now. Yeah, let's. Uh, as ever, well, in fact, perhaps more than uh, has been the case for the last couple of months, uh, Melbourne is in full swing film culture-wise. It absolutely... It's interesting. Ace was saying something similar when Ace Wagstaff was in uh, for our uh, visual arts review art attack earlier this morning. He's like, January? Yeah, it's a bit quiet. February, things are starting to happen. You get to March and suddenly it's just the floodgates have opened. Yeah, it's just festival upon festival and, uh, you know, we've put uh, fripperies behind us like the Oscars and we can get down to the serious business of uh, film and its many manifestations uh, inside, outside. 
uh, within the confines of a multiplex, an art house, most of which are multiplexes these days anyway, and uh, the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, the Astor, any number of film societies, and, good grief, the umpteen festivals that call Melbourne home, uh, and many of which then travel about the countryside. I, though, will begin, um, I know Thomas Calder will have covered this and, and waxed rapturous over it already this morning on Breakfasters, but uh, oh, well, I will present a slightly uh, differing view of the new Paul Thomas Anderson film Inherent Vice, which opens in cinemas fairly widely next Thursday, but which very notably at the Astor uh, on Friday the 13th will be presented on 7 mm film for two screenings, one at 7.30 and 10.30 p.m. This is the new film from PTA, who was also being celebrated in a retrospective at the Melbourne Cinematheque presently, which kicked off last night with Hard Eight and Boogie Nights and runs for another two weeks. Uh, Inherent Vice, not dissimilarly to his previous work, is an ensemble piece, uh, with uh, a clear lead in Joaquin Phoenix's drug-addled private eye, Larry Doc Sportello. Uh, Have such ferocious mutton chops been seen on the big screen for (laughs) any time uh, outside of a period drama? I think not. I was thinking period drama. I was thinking um, uh, there will be blood... Ah, well, within the realm of Paul Thomas Thomas Anderson. Anderson, Yeah, Yeah, and look, in fact, this really is a period piece too. It's very much set at the very end of the 60s into the 70s. It's an adaptation, in fact, the first film adaptation of Thomas Pynchon's work, uh, that famous reclusive, who knows what he even looks like, author of uh, such mind-bending and seldom read uh, in completion uh, works as uh, Gravity's Rainbow. This is one of his more pithy pieces, but would undoubtedly still have presented a huge challenge for PTA to adapt. It is a kaleidoscopic beat uh, beachside hippie Californian noir, if you like, uh, in which... Sorry, can you say that again? Beachside Californian hippie noir. Yeah, kaleidoscopic beat. You know, this very inflected with beat poetry. Uh, you know, it's sort of a hard-boiled beat crossover. Uh, yes, Californian noir. I mean, there was a bit of that in the 70s already at the time with LA-set films like Chinatown or The Long Goodbye. But this is something quite else. It's uh, the... the the counterculture is very much in full force here, if with a slightly uh, jaundiced eye towards it as it was well on its way out. In fact, such things as the Manson murders it just sort of hover as a spectre in the background throughout this film. But really, it, is, it presents itself much more as a, a romp. It doesn't want to go too deeply into the, the, uh, the descent into Nixon-era Americana that was uh, afoot at this time the, the film is set. Well, what we have here is just this, it's it's a fairly exhausting film full of uh, labyrinthine twists and turns in which Doc uh, is is called upon by an ex-girlfriend, Shasta Faye Hepworth. Everyone has fantastic names in this film, as in all of Pynchon's novels, played by Catherine Waterston. And she spins him a yarn about a, a billionaire land developer boyfriend she presently has named Mickey Wolfman, who has disappeared. And she rather thinks that Wolfman's wife and her new boyfriend may have something to do with it. They may, in fact, have been plotting to kidnap him and throw him in uh, an asylum, or any number of colourful terms for which, as populate this film, it's full of uh, all sorts of great patois. Um, so between uh, her and Doc and uh, a strange sort of narrator character who exists both outside and inside the narrative and played by Joanna Newsom, of all people, in her film debut, 
Uh, this this labyrinthine plot sort of spins out of control, and Doc, uh, when he's not battling his nemesis, uh, an LAPD detective played by Josh Brolin with a very unflattering hairdo, um, and when you know, when he, well against his nemesis, he is able to call uh, to his side an attorney, Sancho Smilax, played by Benicio del Toro, who seems to be channeling much the same character as he did in the adaptation of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, uh, and uh, a D- assistant DA girlfriend played by Reese Witherspoon. Um, Doc's you know, got his hands pretty full as he tries to make head or tails of all these intertwined personalities and their lunatic schemes and alliances, which even sees a sort of Black Panther guerrilla group somehow in cahoots with the Aryan Brotherhood <laughs> for strategic purposes, um, and a, a number of great character actors either hamming it up furiously, a la Martin Short as some sort of a bizarre, lascivious dentist, and uh, Owen Wilson and seemingly any number of personas, uh, though all of them are very much Owen Wilson. And uh, a particular pleasure for me as a fan of Hal Hartley's films, Martin Donovan in a a small but significant role. I hadn't really seen him in anything for some time. And uh, look, to try to go into any of of all of these um, plot lines, it's just pointless. Um, But what a cast. Well, it is an extraordinary cast. Um, That's not all of it either, but... um, the cast isn't half as extraordinary as all of the plot developments you're expected to somehow keep up with, and it actually gets to the point, I found, where it's just so exhausting that I actually found it ultimately slightly deadening and, and inconsequential. There's just too much going on, and everyone having such a great time enacting it that, in a way, it's sort of distancing from any emotional effectivity. It just... Um, I found it ultimately alienating and even and I know Thomas is going to be furious about this but we'll take this up on Plato's Gave on Monday I actually found it boring I I really enjoyed about the first half hour but uh, look since this film and before it I've seen the trailer quite a number of times and I really enjoy the trailer and everything you need to know about the film really is in that trailer and in a way, it's, it also just captures all that's kind of necessary to experience in it. There's a bit of slapstick, a bit of Joaquin Phoenix uh, just having a ball, uh, variously appearing extremely stoned, uh, astonished, befuddled, bedraggled. Uh, but really... Uh, Inherent vice is getting the thumbs down. Well, it is. Come the end of the film, I was just sort of uh, just tired, weary, and in need of sunshine, which is odd because this is a very sunny film noir the whole film is shot through a really... It's actually quite lovely. It is a, a beautiful sort of druggy haze. But, uh, yeah, it just wore me down, Richard. And uh, I was very disappointed. Well, oh well, I'm... Uh, my my interest in inherent vice may have been slightly tempered now. Yeah, but there'll be plenty of others to champion it yet, I don't doubt. And, um, oh, for sure. Meanwhile, look, there are other films. So look, in fact, much of his, his work has been a little divisive for everyone who'll... Uh, tell you how great Punch Drunk Love is, which is on at the Melbourne Cinematheque at Acme next Wednesday. There'll be those of you who will just remind you that it is still kind of sort of an Adam Sandler film. Um, yeah, that is much to diminish its actual accomplishments. It is a very, very strange Adam Sandler film. But, yeah, I, um, I was really disappointed. Well, well, that's inherent vice. Not to worry. Not to worry. 
There's no shortage of other things going on. Should we talk festivals briefly? Well, yeah, or at least a bit of a gloss over other things. Which festival did you have in mind? Did you have a particular one you wanted well, to? Well, given that uh, we spoke to the uh, director of the French Film Festival earlier this morning, Emmanuel uh, Denevi-Feller, um, maybe we should talk about the Queer Film Festival. Which kicks off in a fortnight today, if I'm not mistaken. We both attended the launch of the program a week or two back. Have you? I was, I was nobly sober. I wasn't at, at the launch. You know, bloody fed fast it's over now. <laughs> Hooray! Um, so look, it's a it's a strong program, and uh, Lisa Daniel, the director of the Melbourne Queer Film Festival, has gone out on something of a limb in terms of the programming and given that several years ago she programmed a foreign language film as the opening night film and there were complaints, uh, complaints. plenty from people people, 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 people who can't cope with subtitles. Grief. What world do they live in? Um, but uh, so yeah, uh, foreign language films for opening night and closing night and a really strong array of international features in and but also uh, I think four Australian features as well. Which is I believe unprecedented and in fact most years as a struggle to find even a single Australian film to slot in the program. Uh, uh, well, certainly features, yes. Yeah, yeah. there's always been a reasonable uh, representation of short works from local filmmakers. Um, yeah, look, it, it looks good. I, I, to be honest, the thing that I'm most excited about is its collaboration with the Cinematheque this year, that there is some retrospective offerings and that they are wonderful. Uh, Todd Haynes's uh, incredibly important new queer cinema benchmark, um, Poison, is part of the program. Uh, and also uh, a selection of films by Kenneth Anger. Yeah, yeah, one of the great, uh, most important avant-gardists and uh, myth-makers in cinema. And, um, oh, look, they're, they're going to be beautiful. They're, there'll be Prince and uh, Scorpio Rising and others there. They're just such, uh, oh, look, early, firstly, early, unabashedly queer film works, but also unabashedly experimental and, and tying in a lot of imagery that um, naive folks like me throughout the 80s still ingested through the burgeoning world of MTV and, and video clips but didn't grasp the fundamental queerness behind a lot of this imagery, a lot of it, uh, actually quite inseparable from rock and roll. And so uh, Scorpio Rising, especially, we see a lot of leather jackets, a lot of studded leather jackets, a lot of bikers, and there's a lot of rock and roll on the soundtrack. And then when I, I cast my mind back to 80s pop figures like Freddie Mercury or Frankie Goes to Hollywood, and, and the lineage is all that much clearer. Absolutely. And, um, yeah, I just absolutely urge people to see that, that program. That's fabulous. Other films in the MQFF I'm looking forward to include The Circle, which is a Swiss film about a landmark uh, publication in Switzerland, uh, the, a gay magazine, The Circle, which was a pioneer of the gay movement. This is a film which combines both uh, drama and documentary, uh, so reenacts scenes and then we see the, the people in those scenes, their real selves 60 odd years later or whatever um, So and it's, that's been, uh, that picked up the Teddy Award for Best Documentary Essay Film at the Berlin Isle, the Berlin International Film Festival last year so that looks very promising. The opening night film uh, which is uh, a uh, was entered uh, into the Academy Awards foreign language category uh, also looks promising about a, a budding romance it's a Brazilian film about a budding romance between a, a young blind man and his new friend um, it's interesting that the coming out narrative um, which is 
not quite been exhausted, but certainly in Western queer cinema, has it's been very thoroughly mined as a as a story trope. Is still very prevalent in some of the foreign language films, which makes sense. It's a fundamental, basic queer narrative, which has burgeoning film industries and burgeoning queer film industries uh, grow in other countries. They're, they're seizing on some of these very familiar stories, but telling them in, in hopefully very different ways. Well, yes, because uh, the cultural specificity uh, that uh, some of these films emerge from is very different to what we might uh, just nowadays take for granted and find a little tired in, say, uh, an American uh, or English or, or other Western uh, queer film. Um, it can't help but have uh, different resonances if the film is, let's say, from a country with uh, greater religiosity uh, in whatever shape or form that might be, or where homosexuals and other queer folk are uh, oppressed, um, perhaps even uh, theocratically. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, um, I mean, one of the things that's fascinating about the MQFF website, and you can uh, navigate at mqff.com.au, you can navigate the website by uh, country. And uh, having you and I have both helped program the festival in the past, in the dim, dim, distant past, uh, in my case particularly, but um, uh, once upon a time it was basically just films from the UK, the USA, Canada, um, and some Australian shorts. Now you've got Argentina... Austria, Belgium, Brazil, Germany, uh, the Dominican Republic, Argentina, El Salvador, uh, Iceland, Iran, the Isle of Man, Mexico, Portugal, Spain, Sri Lanka, the Philippines, Taiwan. It's a really, really rich cultural mix of queer cinema. So uh, I'm very looking forward to uh, diving into the, the binging. Festival. Yes. Yeah, likewise. Um, is that we... Quickly, other festivals? Yeah, just very... Well, we've, you've spoken at length with the uh, French Film Festival director a little earlier. I'll just bring people's attention to the Holocaust film series at Classic Cinemas in Elstonwick, running from March 12th to 25th. There's only one title amongst their offerings that I have seen, uh, but it is a really wonderful film I caught overseas last year called In Silence. It's a Slovak-Czech-German co-production concerning a variety of notable Jewish musicians of the interwar era whose once merry lives and great careers, uh, whether realised or still emerging, uh, ran up against the horrors of forced transportation to the concentration camps. And it's just a really poetic documentary, or docudrama, dramatised documentary, uh, with some extraordinary imagery and, of course, some extremely distressing imagery and some wonderful, wonderful music. It's um, both uplifting and ultimately devastating, as I dare say any number of other films within that program will be. So to find out more about that, you can head to the website of the Jewish International Film Festival locally, or JIF, um, the Holocaust film series running from March 12th to 25th, uh, Classic Cinemas, Elstonwick exclusively. And I'll wind up just by mentioning it's not so much a festival, but a season of wonders at Acme beginning tomorrow, running through to the Sunday 15th of March, Epic Intimacy, the cinema of Zhang Yimou and Gong Li. Uh, Zhang is uh, one amongst the fifth generation of Chinese filmmakers who are the first graduates of the Beijing Film Academy after China's Cultural Revolution. He's pretty well known around these parts for such early noughties films as Hero and House of Flying Daggers, those uh, extraordinarily vividly beautiful uh, kung fu flicks. He also directed the Beijing 2008 Olympic Games opening ceremony, but this season is specifically focused on one of those great actor-director collaborations, which began in 1987 with Red Sorghum and has 
continued through to a brand new film, Coming Home, which I am dying to see, and between times goes through such classics as Raise the Red Lantern, about the life of a young concubine in the 1920s, and Shanghai Triad, in which Gong Li is a nightclub singer in 1930s Shanghai. And look, Zhang is just one of the great esthetes of the cinema. His films are exquisitely beautiful, as can also be said of his muse, the extraordinary Gong Li. And while I haven't seen half as many of these films as I would have liked, I now can remedy that. And I would strongly urge others to as well. So that's at Acme running from tomorrow through till Sunday week. The cinema of Zhang Yimou and Gong Li. And uh, that's about me done, I think, for this fortnight, Richie. Thank you, Cerise. We'll catch you in a fortnight's time. And listeners can catch you on Plato's Cave here on Triple R on Monday nights. Yeah, when there might be a bit of biffo over inherent vice. (laughs) (laughs) We'll stay tuned for that. Many thanks for the pleasure of your company over the last couple of hours. As I said, time for me to go, and uh, I will catch you next week. Thank you for listening to the Smart Arts Podcast. You can listen to Smart Arts every Thursday morning from 9am to 12pm here on Triple R. This podcast was produced by Nabila Petrucci. Mm-hmm.